happy Valentine's, everyone. I just want to encourage you to love your, love your loved ones today. It doesn't have to be chocolates. It doesn't have to be flowers. It can just be words of encouragement today. Speak life into the people you love. Um, but let's jump into the message this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the first, the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if you're just jumping back in with us in terms of where we're at, where we're at we are in this year-long series that we've titled More Like Jesus. And you saw it in the video. How has your spouse made you more like Jesus? But that's what we're asking. The question is, how can we become more like Jesus? And starting in September, you know, we began with looking at what does it mean to live like Jesus? And then later on into the fall, we got into what does it mean to look more like Jesus? And now we're asking what I think is is the most difficult question of them all for this entire year. And that is, what does it mean to love like Jesus? Well, uh, when my oldest son, his name's Terry as well, when he, he he's 10, but when he was five in senior kindergarten, uh, he was he started bringing home some of the toys from his classroom and they were things were that were small like a, a car or an action figure and his parents you know we wanted to instill good practices good morals into his life and so we said to him we said terry you know that is that's called stealing you know you're speaking to a five-year-old right you're like that is stealing that is wrong you can't take those toys from your school and we're, we're in, and but it kept happening you know over the next few weeks he kept bringing home little toys here and there like a train uh, uh, whatever it is and we you know in some countries you're going to lose your right hand for doing that we really rec don't recommend it uh, but finally one day you know he was getting to the point where we're like he's not listening to us as parents and we're like what do we got to do like we what's next like carjacking you know bank robbery like what are we if we don't intervene now this is not going to look good and and he brought home this really awesome toy it was like this transformer and this was like more significant than the other toys that he had brought home and we're like okay now is the time for us to step in and so i you know sat him down and i said you need to confess for what you have done and he said i didn't take the toy a friend from school gave it to me. And I, I thought to myself, not only is he stealing, but now he's lying. Like, what are we doing? What, like, what have we done as parents? And so I sent him to his room and, and, and I said, you're not going to school. You're not allowed to come out of that room. And you're not going to school until you confess to your sin of stealing. And he didn't come out of his room. He wouldn't give it up. And we underwent hours of intense interrogation and negotiation to try to solicit a confession. And finally, after hours, he came out of his room and he said, okay, I took the toy. Can I go to school now? And so, you know, triumphantly, I drove him to school. And on our car ride, we, we rehearsed a script of how he was going to go into the office and he was going to confess to his sin. He was going to tell his wrongdoing and he was going to return the toy back to the school. And, and so we went into the office and he, he said to the receptionist, I took this toy, I stole it, and I'm giving it back and I'm sorry. And the moment as he was exchanging the toy back into the receptionist's hands, a young girl walked into the office, a few years older than he was at the time, and she said, hi Terry, how are you liking the toy that my brother gave you? And I stopped and my jaw dropped. And I realized he wasn't lying. He didn't steal the toy. 
a boy had actually given him that toy. And I looked at my son with shame in my eyes. And he had the look of a prisoner who had been just left off death row. And he had a big grin on his face. And he said, I told you I didn't take the toy. Much of our brokenness, our hurt, our frustration and pain that we've experienced in this life is due to a failure of love. You know, whether we fail to love someone the way they ought to be loved, the way that, you know, I failed to love my son in that moment, or someone failed to love us the way that we ought to be loved. C.S. Lewis once wrote that to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Because imperfect love is the inescapable reality of living in a fallen world. Imperfect love is why there exists so much suffering, so much injustice, so much division. And what often happens in our failure to love or be loved is that when we see an injustice, when we experience this pain and brokenness, is that our natural tendency is to respond with anger and outrage. And this is especially evident in our culture today. I don't even need to give any examples, but all I need to do is say the word 2020 and your brain will fill in the blanks. And in some cases, that anger and outrage, well, it might just be justified. I mean, who knows? But as a disciple of Christ, I must ask the question, not is, my, is what am I feeling and thinking justified, but is what I am thinking or feeling making me more like Christ? Bruxy Cavey, a Canadian pastor and author, he once said that whatever it is that anger and outrage are helping you accomplish, love will do a better job. What if being more like Jesus is not diminishing the anger or the outrage you or another might be feeling right now, but rather what if being more like Jesus is suggesting that there is a better option out there, that there is a better way, and that way is love. You see, while our love is imperfect, God's love is perfect. And even though you and I, we may fail a thousand times and a thousand times more, God's love will never fail. And so here's what we're going to be doing between now all the way to Easter. We're going to take an honest look at where our love is right now. But we're not just going to stop there. We're going to then look at where our love is, but then we're going to look at where God's love is. You know, Wayne Gretzky, the famous hockey player, we all know who he is, once said to an aspiring young hockey player, he says, the greatest advice that I have is don't skate to where the puck is. Skate to where the puck is going to be. And so while for the next few weeks, we're going to look at where our love is by taking a look at some of the Old Testament characters like we did last week. We looked at the life of Jonah to see where our love is. We don't want to just go to where our love is. We want to go to where our love should be. And that is, of course, the love of God. And we're going to look at some of the examples in Jesus's life of how Jesus loved others and, and us for that matter. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Israel's greatest king. To look at where our love is, we want to look at the life of King David. In fact, one moment in David's life. But before we get there, who exactly was King David? Well, if you don't know who King David was, King David was as a young boy, he was a simple shepherd, the youngest of many brothers, who was anointed to be Israel's next king. When God took the anointing, he withdrew the anointing and the subsequent kingship from the life of King Saul. As a young man, David was the boy who, who slayed the, the giant Goliath. And he was known as a passionate musician who would play for the Lord and he would just get lost in the presence of God. 
He was described as a man after God's own heart. He was tender. He was passionate. And much of the book of Psalms that you know, some of the greatest poetry, some of the greatest you know, lyrics penned about God were written by David. But David was also a fierce warrior. In fact, some of his, his victories in battle were the things of legends. But as great as David was, David was also like you and me, meaning he was human. And there was a moment in David's life where David's love failed. Failed in a manner that which on the surface seemed like a mistake that could be glossed over, but in fact had created so much collateral damage to the people around him that from that moment forward, David's kingship and his family would never be the same again. And in 2 Samuel 11 verse 1, it begins with this. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. See, there's intense foreshadowing that the author is wanting you to see. But David remained at Jerusalem. You get the idea that something is about to happen that shouldn't happen. Is he at this time of spring, that is when kings went out to war with their nations. Most nations would stop for the winter months. It was too dirty. It was too messy. It was not the time for war. And so when the weather opened up, that is when kings would go out to war. And at this time, all of Israel is out to do battle. But for some reason, the text doesn't really say David wasn't. We don't really know why. Some speculate that the battle was just this inevitable victory for Israel, and so that's why David stayed at home. All we do know is that no matter how many times David had gone out to war before, in this moment he hasn't. Meaning David is out of position. He is not where David should be. Most important, he is not where God wants him to be. David is vulnerable. Just like you and I are vulnerable anytime we find ourselves out of position. And is, is it wrong to find ourselves out of position the way that David is out of position? Or how, perhaps it's not wrong, but certainly it is not wise. You see, while David, is, uh, while David should be off at war, instead David is found wandering his rooftop. And in verse 2 to 3, it says that one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sends someone to find out about her. So David sees on his rooftop a woman bathing, and if that wasn't enough information for you, the author needed to add the extra detail that she was a beautiful woman. Again, is David wrong for remaining at home? Of course not. Is David sinning by being up on his rooftop? No. You know, the temptation that suddenly lurched into David's heart, in that moment, had he broken any of God's law? You could argue that he has not yet at that point broken any of God's law. Yet all the events that are about to transpire, they point back to that one decision, that while kings are supposed to go out to war, David remained at Jerusalem. David was out of position, but not in the way that you and I might most naturally think David is out of position. You see, when we see David's position, we most naturally assume that he was out of position in a physical sense. We think, why are you on the rooftop, David? Why are you at home when you should be at a war? Why are your eyes looking where they shouldn't be looking? But there's something more significant happening. More significant than David's positioning in a physical sense is the position that David finds in regards to his heart. In fact, you might say that what led David to be out of position up there on that rooftop was first the direct consequence to being out of position in here in his heart. First, we see that David is alone. Well, what's wrong with being alone? Well, 
nothing is wrong with being alone. Yet when David should have been surrounded by his mighty men, David is instead at home alone without accountability, without the strength of his community. God said in the very beginning that it was not good for man to be alone. And oftentimes we assume that God is speaking only to a relational matter. But what if God was speaking more relation, not just relationally, but spiritually? Could it be that spiritually God meant that it's not good for you and I to be alone? And certainly there are times when isolation or, or, uh, or solitude can be beneficial to our soul. Yet there exists in our culture today a mindset of individualism which breeds isolation. It's a spiritual condition that seeps into our soul and at the, at the heart of it, it's, it says, I can do this on my own. Or I don't need others in order to love God. Like being on the rooftop, loneliness is not a sin. Yet the longer we remain alone, the more vulnerable we become to the attack of the enemy. Like a lion seeks to separate one or two animals from the strength of the herd, so too does the enemy prey upon those who are isolated and set apart from godly community. It's why the, the Nathan's rebuke of David serves as such a powerful and ultimately such a redemptive part of David's life. When we try to follow Jesus alone, we find ourselves out of position more often than not. But together in community, the way that God created us to be, we are not easily broken. Second, and this one might not feel very significant, but I think it's far more spiritual significant than we realize, especially today. And that is David's not just alone, but David is bored. He is bored. He's twiddling his thumbs. He's on his rooftop. There's time on his hands. I think better said, David is not just bored. He is purposeless. Because David was anointed anointed with God's Holy Spirit to fight the Lord's battles, to be the commander-in-chief of once he described as the army of the living God. His God-given purpose was to be there on the front of the battlefield, yet what David is doing in that moment is he's wa wa walking on the rooftop, gazing at what does not belong to him. It's no wonder that what everyone else was doing what David was made by God to do, that something within him was out of sorts. Something wasn't right. And there's a biblical word that can be used to describe one who is without such godly purpose or without such godly passion. Do you know what that word is? The word is a sluggard or the sin of sloth. And while boredom is certainly not a sin, we know that sloth certainly is. David is alone. David is bored. Third, David is proud. Psalm, or Proverbs 16, 8 says, Pride comes before destruction, an arrogant spirit before the fall. You see, while David does not have the authority to take that woman to be his own, David as king has the power to do so. And ultimately, it was his pride that as king, he had the kingly right to do so. It led him to send his servants and inquire who this woman was. And he discovered that her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of one of his mighty men, Uriah, a man he had fought beside, a man who was one of his closest friends. It was his wife that this woman Bathsheba was. Not only that, she was the granddaughter to one of his closest advisors. Can you see what pride does? Humility in that moment would recognize that not only is she a married woman and that you have no right to do what he's about to do, but she is a family member to some of the closest friends in his life. And instead of sending her or maybe sending himself as far away from that moment as possible, he sends for her to come. You see, what causes David's love to fail 
is, is, is really the same reason that causes our love to fail. And that is before we ever step at a position in our relationships or our actions or our decisions, we first allowed ourselves to take a step at a position in here. And that is how so often our love fails. Because when we are at a position, we are no longer able to see clearly what God wants us to see. We see only what we see. We see what only we desire to see. And as a consequence, David fails to love Bathsheba the way he ought to have loved her. And as a result, David causes Bathsheba to be at a position by causing her to not love her husband the way she ought to love her husband. And not only that, David puts his servants at a position by making him do his dirty work, by making him keep the secrets that Bathsheba is now with childs. David puts his army out of position by, putting, by ordering the execution of Bathsheba's husband Uriah to cover up his own sin. Do you see what I'm getting at today? The consequence for being out of position with our love it goes as deep as it does wide. And from that moment forward, David's life, his throne, and his family are never the same again. The experience is the death of his child, the child he conceived with Bathsheba. He experiences the child's death as a consequence. Later, he, there would be sibling rivalry over his throne. There would be generational brokenness. But this is not just the story of David, is it? This is the story of humanity. It is our story, typified through Adam and Eve's desire to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil believing that they had the authority to choose what was right and wrong. And since that moment, we humans, we have two fundamental desires that exist apart from the love of God. We want to live independent of God, number one, but number two, we want to have heaven on earth. And every failure to love through all of human history, every time that you and I, we have failed to love, it has resulted from the birthing of those desires which are completely out of position from the desire that flows from the love of God. And before we move on, I just want to say one more thing, and, and I, I know that this might bring some pain with it because of all that we have gone through this past year, but I want to say it to you today in love. This past year, a lot of us have been placed out of position, and not by choice, mind you, but we didn't want this. We didn't ask for this. This is nobody's fault. But this was a time when we are, you and I, we're supposed to be living in community. We're supposed to be worshiping together, serving one another, loving one another. But instead, many of us, and all of us in some capacity, but many of us have been forced to remain at home. And here's the painful reality of this season we are still walking through. Because many of us are right now out of position. Many of us are feeling very alone right now. Many of us are bored. Some of us are bored. And maybe, to put it a better way, some of us are just feeling without purpose in this season. And third, we, I would think you, we would all acknowledge that many, many of us, maybe you today, are feeling spiritually dry. In fact, I don't know anybody here. I haven't met one person who has said, all this being at home alone with nobody around me, not going to church, not being part of a community, it's done a wonders for my spiritual life. I've grown in ways I never thought I could before. Maybe if you have, I mean, God bless you, but I haven't met anyone who has said that. And while not for a second am I worried about a church at a position, I know this too shall pass. And I want to encourage you, this season will pass. This winter, both physically but spiritually, will end. Spring will come. Joy will come in the morning. 
But what I am worried about is what is happening in the hearts of those who have intentionally or unintentionally allowed themselves to get out of position in here in their hearts. I don't say this to bring any guilt or shame whatsoever. Honestly, I don't. I want to say this to you today in love. I want to encourage you, recognize the position that you are in. Ask yourself, examine yourself. More importantly, invite God to search your hearts to see if there's anything in you today, in you, not just out there, but in you today that is out of position. Because while so much of our life has been put on pause, the spiritual war that exists over your soul, over the soul of your loved ones, over this church, this community, this city, this nation, has not stopped for one second. Dean Sherman said this in one of his books. He says, one of our spiritual enemy's greatest advantage over the children of God is his consistency as opposed to our inconsistency. And that is why it is so important not only to examine the position of our hearts today, but we need to examine the position of God's hearts. And that is why this morning I want to tell you a story that is a far better story than the story that I have just told you. And that is the story of Jesus. You see, in John chapter 4, we see a divine encounter take place where Jesus, he too meets a woman, a Samaritan woman, who for reasons implied in the text, you know, has a troubled past. Jesus would later reveal that she is a woman that has had many husbands and is currently living with one who is not her husband. Now, many times, and I've heard this, and I've never been a big fan of this, I've heard some people commentate that somehow this is the woman's fault that she is in this position. That somehow she is the one who is somehow promiscuous enough that she's going from husband to husband to husband. If you know anything culturally about this time, you know that that is far from the case. This is a woman who, yes, has a past that she is ashamed of, but she is a woman filled with pain. She is a woman who has suffered. She is a, a woman who has needed culturally in that time to rely on men for her survival. And either way, this is a woman who has gone to the well and she is traveling alone at a time when women never traveled alone. They always traveled in groups. Explains why women are always going to the bathroom together. But they always traveled in groups. And she is going at the noon time of day. It is 12 o'clock. At that time, you only collected water in the cool of the evening. But there she is in the hottest point of the day. And if you know anything, you'll know that this woman has intentionally gone past the, the well that is closest to her home. And she has gone further out to a distant well, a well outside of her village, so that nobody's eyes would be on her. You know from these accounts that this is a woman who does not want to be seen. This is a woman who is deeply ashamed of who she is. And ironically in this story, it begins with Jesus. It says traveling from Judea to Samaria. And in John chapter 4 verse 1, it says, Now he, Jesus, he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you know anything about biblical geography, and of course, I don't expect you to know anything, what you need to know is that Jesus actually did need to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go the way Jesus said, I had to go through Samaria. You see, while Samaria was the most direct route to where Jesus was going, almost all Jews at the time would have taken the extended journey around Samaria because of how much they hated and despised the Samaritan people. I mean, they despised them. 
We don't have time to get into it this morning, but the Samaritan and the Jews were the most hated enemies. And much of John chapter 4 gives context into these tangled relations. But ironically, while David, unlike David, who shouldn't have been up on that rooftop to see Bathsheba, we see Jesus, he had to go through Samaria. In John chapter 4, 7 to 10, it says that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that I is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. For Jesus to ask this woman for a drink would have been a breach of social custom in just about the worst way imaginable. She knew it. He knew it. And his disciples, when they showed up, they knew it. First of all, men did not talk to women in that day, and especially Jews did not talk to Samaritans. And for Jesus to say, give me a drink of water, for him to have no water jug of his own, he would have been required to take her water jug, to drink from her water jug. In other words, culturally, Jesus is out of position. But now for a second, is Jesus out of position, is he? See, for everyone around him, it seemed like he was in the worst position possible. Yet the Spirit had arranged this divine encounter. And Jesus loved this woman so much. More, he loved the Samaritan people so much that even if it put him in the worst position culturally, he just had to be there. And there beside the well, Jesus talked, treated this woman, a social outcast, with dignity, respect, grace, and even truth. They converse about water and living water. And there's a moment in conversation where her natural thirst gives way to a greater spiritual thirst. See, he loved her the way who, for who she was, but he loved her too much to leave her the way that she was. So he sends her back to the, her village. And in John chapter 4, 28 to 30, it says, the woman left her water jar. That's significant. She left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town, the people, and they were coming to him. Who were those people coming to see Jesus? These were the same people who had been broken, angry, frustrated, hurt, bitter, because generation after generation, there was hostility, there was violence, there was rejection, there was, there was fighting. Yet the story ends by saying that many that day, many Samaritans came to believe in Jesus because of that woman's testimony. Isn't the love of God so amazing? Unlike David's love, his selfish love, it brought pain, it brought frustration, which endured and lasted for generation after generation. The love of Jesus found a people, came upon a people, who for generation after generation were broken and in pain. Yet through one moment, through one divine encounter of his love, he brought them and he made them whole. He brought them his light. He brought them his salvation. Most importantly, he brought them his love. What does it mean to love like Jesus? 
Well, it means to recognize today that when we love with our own desires, our own passions, our pride, it will result in pain, frustration, anger that can result deep as it does wide. It has lasting consequences that are beyond our scope in the moment. Yet when we love the way Jesus loved, a love that puts the Father's heart before our own, a love that humbles us, a love that is willing to go to no places that anybody else is willing to go to, that is a love that can heal what has been broken for generations. When we look at the cross today, when we look at the cross, that is exactly what we see. We see a love that was willing to go where nobody else was willing to go. You see, it was our imperfect love that nailed Jesus to that cross that day. It was our imperfect love that made us believe that we could do this apart from him. And even when Jesus gave up his last breath on that cross, when he cried out, it is finished, everybody who looked upon Jesus in that moment thought it was he that was the one that was out of position, not him. We know today the good news, that imperfect love was no match for the perfect love of God. The good news is today that while our sin runs deep and wide, the love of God spreads deeper and wider. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And that's what makes the cross so beautiful to us today. It was at the cross that humanity failed to love God the way he ought to have been loved. Yet instead of reaping upon us an eternal curse, he bore the consequence for our sin. Instead of returning to us anger, retribution, and violence, he poured out his love. He poured out his love upon all of us today, just like he poured out his love upon David. When David cried out, created me a clean heart, O God. Have mercy upon me, God. And God in his love forgave David. Just like the love of God was poured out upon the Samaritan woman, who when everyone else saw an outcast, Jesus saw a daughter of the Most High. And just as he has sees you today and has poured out his love upon you today, he sees your imperfect love. But not only does he desire to heal yours and my imperfect love today, he wants to transform our love so that we can love the way he loves us. So right now what I want to do is I want to take a moment to pray. I want to pray for three things today. Number one, I want to pray for those who might recognize that they are out of position. It's a simple prayer. I encourage you, pray. Ask the Lord. If you've been at home since March, you haven't been able to step outside. Yes, you're at a position physically, but this is a great opportunity just to take a moment, just to pray, God, am I at a position right in here? Am I in position in my heart? Number two, if, if the answer is yes, I just want to pray that just that you would just pour out your heart to God right now, that you would stretch out towards the perfect love of God that offers grace, that offers forgiveness and redemption and restoration. And third and finally, what I want to pray for is that like Jesus loved the Samaritan woman, that we might love others the way they ought to be loved, that we would love with a Christ-like love today, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us and gave his life for us. And in return, may we love others the same way Christ has loved us. So would you just pray with me right now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Heavenly Father, we just, at this time as we come to a conclusion in the service, God, we just want to say thank you today for the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. That not only was it your love that saved us that day on that cross, but it is through the cross that we know what perfect love is that we know how to love the way that we ought to love. 
That is what the cross does. That is what the cross reveals. And God, my prayer today is, is many of us, we've been out of position for so long. But God, I pray, Lord, and that we know that it is possible that at a time where we feel out of position culturally or naturally, that we don't have to be out of position spiritually. God, I pray, Lord, that right now we just extend our hearts to you, Lord. Lord, if we feel alone, if we feel purposeless, if, we, if there's pride, if there's spiritual dryness, whatever it may be, oh God, may we just right now cry out to you and ask you, Lord, to do what only you can do, to mend what is broken, to heal what hurts. Lord, restore our first love. Awaken us to your love. God, I pray you put a fire in our hearts a zeal, a passion, Lord, an anticipation, God, that when we can return into position, God, that our hearts would just burst into flame. And Lord, we want to love like you love today, God. We want to love others the way they ought to be loved. Lord, we know today that we will fail at this a thousand times more because we are human and our love is imperfect. We celebrate today and recognize that the perfect love of God is in us today because of what your spirit has done. And so we just say, Holy Spirit, may your love take over. May your love conquer our imperfect love. And may every day as we grow more and more like Christ, may we every day love more and more like Christ. That is our prayer. That is our heart's cry. And that is something we believe that you will accomplish according to your plan and your will. We love you today, oh God. And we are grateful, God. Next Sunday, I pray, Lord, when we, those of us return to in-gathering, Lord, Spirit, would you just be poured out upon us? God, I pray that we just would come alive, your church would come alive once again. As we have come alive before, we will come alive again. Awaken us, I pray. Do a new work in us. Like David prayed, create in us a clean heart. Take not thy Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Lord, that is our prayer. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.